to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Well, a lot of us probably grew up thinking of uterine fibroids as an old lady condition. That's not actually true at all. In fact, they typically start growing in our 20s and 30s, with the peak incidence of them becoming problematic in our 40s. That's because during these years, when our bodies are really fertile and going through our cycles, we have more estrogen and growth factors. And when those are in excess, they feed fibroids like miracle Grow feeds houseplants. In fact, as estrogen levels naturally decline in menopause, that's when fibroids usually spontaneously shrink. Uterine fibroids, or fibroids, are solid, well-defined, non-cancerous growths of muscle tissue in the uterus. They're highly prevalent in the United States, where a woman's lifetime risk of developing them is estimated to be as high as, get this, 75%. And that's even higher for black women who have a lifetime risk of 80%. We're going to talk more about that. The often cited 20 to 50% lifetime likelihood of having fibroids is old news and a significant underestimation. Uterine fibroids are important for us to understand starting when we're really young in our 20s so that we can prevent them and no treatment options for them should you develop them. Because not only can they cause discomfort, they can sometimes affect conception and pregnancy. And they're the most common cause of hysterectomies other than uterine cancer. About 17% of all hysterectomies in the U.S. are performed for uterine fibroids. The peak incidence of surgery also occurs for women in their 40s, usually around age 45, making fibroids the primary cause of premenopausal hysterectomies. Most of these hysterectomies, and many of them are done on women in their 20s and 30s, are considered medically unnecessary, with women remaining uninformed about medical alternatives to surgery by their physicians. Given the remarkably high incidence of uterine fibroids, their significant impact on our health, the high rate of hysterectomies as a result of them, it's really important for all women to know how to prevent them and the strategies that are available to reduce them to avoid unnecessary surgery and possibly unnecessary medications. It's important also to know that like so many chronic women's health conditions, fibroids may be a symptom of reversible environmental and dietary factors that can be associated with other medical conditions as well. Therefore, an integrative approach to fibroids can not only prevent and reduce them, but is an important part of a plan for lifetime hormonal and total health. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to Natural MD Radio, episode 159, Uterine Fibroids 101. Uterine fibroids, properly called uterine leomyomata, vary in size from practically microscopic to that of a jumbo grapefruit or bigger. A uterine 
A uterus with fibroids is described in comparison to a pregnant uterus size. So a certain size fibroid is described as a 16-week uterus or a 24-week uterus. They may grow singly or in clusters and can grow in a variety of locations in the uterus. As a women's gynecologic and obstetric physician, I'm a family doctor who specialized in women's health, gynecology, and obstetrics, as well as pediatrics. I have been in and assisted in many um, surgeries for uterine fibroids. And what they really remind me of is if you've ever seen a tree with knots on a tree, like those burls, they are kind of these just very fibrous, dense, knotty areas of the uterus. They can occur in different locations and they're classified according to their site of growth in the uterine or surrounding tissue. They have three different classifications. There are subserosal uh, fibroids, which are in the outer wall of the uterus, and that's the most common, about 55%. There are intramural fibroids, which are found buried in the muscle layers of the uterine wall. That's about 40%. And there are submucosal fibroids, which protrude into the uterine cavity. cavity. Those are about 5%. They can also occur in the cervix uh, between the uterine fibroid ligaments, which are called interligamentous fibroids, or they can attach to a stalk called a pedunculated fibroid and protrude into the uterine cavity, which are called pedunculated submucosal fibroids, or through the cervix. While not all women will experience symptoms if they have fibroids, it is estimated that one in three will. So, that's a lot. 30% of women will have some symptoms. And in fact, there are nearly 70,000 emergency department visits by women each year for symptoms due to fibroids. And that's a rate that has tripled over recent years. So as I talk about in my new book, Hormone Intelligence, the rates of these chronic insidious gynecologic problems have really gone up in recent decades. And that also is why we have that underestimated old data of 20 to 50% of women developing uterine fibroids when it's actually 75 to 80% of women. If you do experience symptoms, they can be mild or they can be terribly uncomfortable and negatively impact quality of life. Symptoms may include heavy periods, menstrual periods lasting more than a week, which is another way of classifying heavy periods. So it can be amount of flow or length of flow or both. Severe menstrual cramps, bleeding between periods, a feeling of fullness in the abdomen or pain during sex, uh, lower backache and leg ache, abdominal distension, constipation, abdominal pain, urinary frequency, urgency or difficulty peeing, and abnormal uterine bleeding present in about 30% of all women with fibroids. Some symptoms are similar to endometriosis, so the diagnosis of one or the other may be missed, and they can actually both occur concurrently. While malignancy is extremely rare with uterine fibroids, they do occur with increased frequency in endometrial hyperplasia, and that's associated with a fourfold increased risk of developing endometrial cancer. Endometrial hyperplasia is similar in um, 
the development of uterine fibroids in that it's also driven by estrogen. On top of all of this, large fibroids may sometimes mask the diagnosis of a more serious gynecologic cancer. It's not 100% clear from a medical perspective what causes uterine fibroids, but we do know quite a lot about what contributes to them. First, we know that they are hormone dependent, meaning that they're fed by hormones. So excess estrogen is considered the primary culprit. And they're also fed by insulin-like growth factors. Like so many hormonally driven conditions, there are many additional factors that conspire from genetics to environmental exposures, nutritional imbalances, and lifestyle factors to trigger fibroids to develop and grow. So we're going to talk about those now. Environmental exposures play a tremendous role as a root cause of fibroids. Endocrine disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, defined by the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences as chemicals that interfere with the body's endocrine system and produce adverse developmental, reproductive, neurological, and immune effects, may be a major contributing factor to estrogen overload and fibroid development and growth. A number of persistent organic pollutants and their breakdown products have actually been detected in the endometrium of premenopausal women undergoing hysterectomies for fibroids. Additionally, EDCs alter the way your DNA works. In the case of uterine fibroids, this allows for unregulated growth of uterine cells. Now, genetics do play a role in many women. If you have fibroids, it's quite likely that your mom or sisters also have this health issue. They may know or not know of it because of symptoms or not having symptoms. And um, they definitely play a role in predisposing women to having fibroids. Now, predisposing doesn't mean that you have to develop develop them. We have, through nutrition, through lifestyle, the ability to modify whether genetic tendencies ultimately manifest into conditions. But it's also important to remember that if your mom and your sister and your grandmom had fibroids and you have fibroids, it also means your daughters may be at more risk of developing them. So it's important to understand how we can use our epigenetics, the ability to alter the areas around our genes with food and lifestyle, modifying environmental exposures and nutritional factors so we can stop that intergenerational domino effect by addressing the estrogen excess, etc., that contributes to fibroids. Now, along with genetics, ethnic background does play a role in fibroids. Fibroids are three times more common in black women than white Asian and Latina women, and at occur at an earlier age, often in women's 20s when they're becoming symptomatic, and are often associated with more severe symptoms. While reasons for this increased prevalence are not yet fully elucidated, a possible relationship to vitamin D deficiency, which is also more common among Black folks, is being studied. And we also have to take into consideration that Black women are at a higher risk of exposure to environmental toxins, both through the communities that Black women might live in and potential higher risk for 
what's called dumping of environmental toxins in neighborhoods and surrounding areas, but also the increased pressure to use a variety of body products and hair products that act as endocrine disruptors. Another important theory is that dairy consumption, already a possible contributor to fibroids, as I'll talk about in a minute, may be more problematic for black women due to dairy intolerance in people of African descent. However, that doesn't fully explain um, the increased prevalence because the increase is not necessarily seen in Jewish women who also have a greater likelihood of lactose intolerance. But important to consider, and we'll talk about uh, dairy in just a second, and and I talk a, a lot in hormone intelligence about why when you're struggling with a hormone imbalance or a hormone-related problem or a gynecologic problem, dairy can be a problem. So let's talk about diet. Diet definitely plays a role in the risk of developing fibroids. So it doesn't mean that because you have fibroids, it's because of your diet, but there is a very strong dietary association. And this is such low hanging fruit for, uh, no pun intended, for us to address. One, vitamin D deficiency or even insufficiency, which is very common in the general population. And I can tell you, the people who come to me as patients are people who are usually already a little bit more knowledgeable about healthy diet and healthy lifestyle. And far more than half of the women that come to me, I'm going to guess probably closer to 80% of the women that come to me, have either insufficient vitamin D based on conventional labs, or frank deficient vitamin D based on conventional labs. It's really, really common, even amongst people who are trying to eat well and trying to get sunlight. Vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency is considered in the medical literature a risk factor for fibroid development. And preliminary data suggests that vitamin D supplementation prevents fibroid growth. Really important. We also know that women who eat um, more red meat and pork in their diet, particularly red meat and ham, and have less consumption of green vegetables, fruit, particularly citrus fruit. Interestingly, eating a piece of citrus a day has been shown to be protective against fibroids, and also fish are associated with a greater likelihood of having uterine fibroids. And some studies do suggest that dairy consumption, ostensibly due to hormones, especially growth factors, and especially in but not exclusive to conventional dairy, may play a role. Keep in mind, even if your dairy is organic, on grass-fed, pasture-raised animals, we have hormones in our in our breast milk. And if those animals were kept lactating and pregnant, which is very common um, in the dairy industry, then that dairy has a higher level of estrogen in it. So even the best quality dairy. So in the hormone intelligence food plan, we address all of these things by reducing the amount of red meat to ideally kind of taking it out of your diet, except on occasion to at least no more than once a week, no ham, daily consumption of eight to 10 servings of fruits and vegetables for women with fibroids, including citrus in the daily diet and fish or fish oil um, to mitigate these factors. And I do recommend that women take 2000 units of vitamin D every day for optimal immune health, for general health, and also for hormonal balance. And we're going to talk more about what you can do in just a little bit. 
Other risk factors that can contribute to fibroids include hypertension, metabolic syndrome, and um, being significantly overweight, as well as trauma. So let's just talk a little bit about those. Evidence suggests that high blood pressure is involved in the pathogenesis, the development of, or the, the things that are kind of going wrong in the body to lead to the development of fibroids and precedes their development. So if you have high blood pressure, interestingly, whether it's controlled or not by medication, so you really want to get to the root causes of blood, high blood pressure from a dietary perspective because it's probably the... Um, increased fibroid growth due to inflammatory chemicals that are associated with both conditions. So the high blood pressure um, usually precedes the fibroid growth. So you really want to get a, a handle on that high blood pressure. And again, we know also due to a lot of cultural factors, cultural factors, including factors associated with racism, that black women also have higher blood pressure. So again, that's another factor that may increase blood pressure in, um, may increase fibroid risk in black women. But again, keep in mind, we're talking about a 5% difference between um, all women and black uh, a cohort of black women. So it's 75 to 80%. So it's a lot for all of us. And 50% of women over 50 are going to have metabolic syndrome, um, which is high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and um, uh, weight challenges or insulin resistance. So something we really want to think about. And that's why um, getting onto a hormone healthy plan isn't just about fibroids. It's about our overall health. It's about our long-term cardiovascular health, our long-term cognitive health, et cetera. So uh, I mentioned weight. Now, you can be healthy at any, not any weight. If you're morbidly obese, that's absolutely associated with high medical risk factors. But you can be overweight, and I'm doing that with air quotes, and be absolutely healthy. But being overweight does lead to more circulating estrogen and more circulating growth factors because those are partly produced in our fat tissue. And those both lead to an increased risk of developing fibroids. So one of the things that you want to try to do if you're struggling with uterine fibroids is to get to your personal optimal healthy weight. We're not talking about getting thin or slim. We're talking about your optimal healthy body weight so that you're reducing that excess production of estrogen and growth factors. I mentioned metabolic. Oh, and just so you know, um, being significantly overweight is um, increases the risk of developing fibroids two to three times more than women who aren't. Metabolic syndrome is also a risk factor due to a combination of weight, high blood pressure, and increased growth factors that contribute to gut fibroid formation and growth. So when you're working on, um, you know, metabolic syndrome, when you're going into eating like a wonderfully healthy meal plan, I talk about it some uh, in a few minutes. I go into it in a full plan created for you in hormone intelligence, including meals and recipes, et cetera. Um, that's really what's going to start to turn around that metabolic syndrome. And that is the core plan for any woman with metabolic syndrome. But at any weight, whether you have high blood pressure or not, if you have fibroids. Now, the medical literature does suggest a possible association between a history of trauma, whether emotional or sexual or both, and uterine fibroid incidence in women. 
The reasons are unclear and may just represent the high incidence of both women experiencing trauma and women experiencing fibroids, but there could possibly be some relationship between immune and hormonal dysregulation that happens as a result of internalized stress due to that trauma. So while not every woman has a history of stress, uh, you know, emotional or, or, or physical trauma, if you do, you know, you deserve to unpack that just for your own emotional and mental health well-being. But of course, um, chronic insidious stress due to trauma can alter our immune function and make us more prone to um, inflammation and, and insulin resistance as a result. So it's not necessarily a kind of core part of a fibroid treatment protocol to have therapy or to do that work. But, um, but it may be an important part for you. So you know, only you can know that. One question I get a lot is, will fibroids impact my likelihood of getting and staying pregnant? The short answer is possibly though it's really unlikely, as in most cases, they're not problematic at all for either conception or during pregnancy and birth. However, they can sometimes cause a variety of problems. And because fibroids are so common, prevention through lifestyle and diet, which again are low-hanging fruit that any of us can shift, remains important to avoid any potential impact on conception or pregnancy complications. Fibroids are present in about 5 to 10% of women who are facing fertility challenges, suggesting the overall prevalence of fibroids in women in their childbearing years already, rather than their impact particularly on fertility. According to some data, fibroids may be the sole cause of infertility in one to 2.4% of women. And keep in mind, infertility does not mean you can't get pregnant. It means you're having a challenge getting pregnant. I personally prefer the term subfertility. But that one to 2.4%, first of all, is extremely low. And it's a controversial figure. And according to most studies, fibroids usually do not interfere with getting pregnant. If they do, the way that happens is causing obstruction in the fallopian tubes, interfering with conception or implantation because the sperm can get up the tube and fertilize the ovum, but then the fertilized egg can't make its way back to the uterus. Or they may affect implantation if the fibroids are especially large and taking up a lot of room in the um, uterine lining. If you have been struggling to get pregnant, then an evaluation for fibroids is an appropriate part of that workup. And that can be done with um, an abdominal or transvaginal ultrasound. In pregnancy, fibroids are found in about 0.1 to 10% of women. So a lot of women go into pregnancy already having fibroids. And despite the fact that fibroids usually actually do grow in pregnancy, up to more than 75% of women who have fibroids experience fibroid growth in pregnancy, and that's due to the increased estrogen feeding those fibroids and other pregnancy hormones. Most women with fibroids don't have any complications during pregnancy related to the fibroids. And in fact, most women, they never know that they even have a fibroid if they do when they're pregnant. Rarely, larger fibroids may contribute to miscarriage, premature labor, malpresentation of the fetus, like a breech presentation, rarely placental abruption or postpartum hemorrhage. However, the preponderance of data do not show an increase, uh, significantly increased risk of adverse events. 
About 11% of women, however, with uterine fibroids do experience some pain in pregnancy. This is something, uh, this is due to something called fibroid degeneration, where limited blood supply to the fibroid causes it to actually die or degenerate. It breaks down. And that can occur anytime in pregnancy, but it's usually a late pregnancy phenomenon. More rare complications can occur, but any complications due to fibroids in pregnancy are really infrequent. They are associated with a higher rate of women having C-sections. However, um, studies show that women with fibroids even larger than 10 centimeters, keep in mind, that's how big your cervix has to dilate to let your baby's head out. So keep in mind, like we're talking size of width of a baby's head and diameter, can still have a vaginal delivery about 70% of the time without any problem, and that's a pretty big fibroid. So it's unclear whether the increased rate of C-sections is due medically solely to the fibroids being present or inadequate knowledge on the part of obstetricians regarding vaginal birth and fibroids. In other words, the physicians may, obstetricians may just be quick to jump to doing a C-section without even trying the vaginal birth if there's a large fibroid present assuming that it's a problem when in fact, again, 75% of the time, 70% of the time, even with those big fibroids, vaginal birth is absolutely a prop, uh, possible. If you do have large fibroids, it's important to work with a skilled OB or family physician in addition to your midwife. Now, y'all know I'm a midwife. I'm all about the midwives. But in this case, if you have a large fibroid, so we're talking you know, you know you have it, you've had symptoms from it, you can feel it, Somebody, your midwife can feel it through, you know, when she palpates your belly because it's on the outside of your uterus, you've been diagnosed with one before, or you've had an ultrasound and it is observed on the ultrasound, then it is important to have that skilled OB or family doctor who does obstetrics um, in addition to your midwife. And that way, if you need extra support, you know, at the time of um, during pregnancy at all or during birth, you have someone in your back pocket who's aware of your situation and is there to support you. And if you do have fibroids in pregnancy and they're large, an ultrasound periodically is appropriate to assess its size and its location to make sure it's not causing any problems around the placenta or around your um, cervix. Postpartum, the good news is that fibroids may actually regress to less than their pre-pregnancy size or even resolve completely. So what do we do about fibroids? How do we treat these? Having a sip of tea here, y'all. So let's start with the conventional treatment for uterine fibroids. Generally, the treatment approach depends on a few important factors, including the type and severity of symptoms, the size and location of the fibroids, your age, and your plans to have children or not. And of course, your personal preferences for the type of treatment that you want. Do you want surgery? Do you not want surgery? Do you want medications? If you don't need them, do you, you know, would you prefer not to have them? Or are you just like, I'm done, do the hysterectomy, right? It's your your choice. It's your body. In most cases, however, if fibroids are small, and aren't causing any symptoms, and small can be anywhere up to a few centimeters. Once fibroids get to be about nine centimeters, that's when physicians start to jump on doing the surgery or doing a hysterectomy. Usually it's a surgery if you're younger and and, um, still want to have children, or uh, you just don't want a hysterectomy, otherwise they recommend a hysterectomy. 
But as I'm going to talk about in a minute, there are a lot of things you can do to shrink uh, fibroid size before you even get to that point. But if fibroids are small and they're not causing you any symptoms or they occur and you're close to menopause, because remember after menopause, they're going to shrink when estrogen starts to shrink in, in, um, in uh, its volume, no treatment is necessary. And you simply monitor for symptoms over time. You don't even have to get that medically monitored. You just pay attention. Thus, the very high rate of hysterectomies for fibroids has been very controversial, with leading medical agencies pushing for a reduction in unnecessary hysterectomies and a greater reliance and greater informing of women of their non-surgical, less aggressive medical approaches. One study that was done in Michigan, it's called a multi-center study. So data was collected from five different centers on over 5,000 women, ranging from women in their mid-20s to their late 50s. And it was found that upwards of 35% of women had never, and including women in their 20s and 30s, had never even been told that there were medications or other things they could do before having a hysterectomy. Like they were never even told they could have a myomectomy or an ablation. They were just told they needed a hysterectomy. So it's really important that you ask questions, that you push back on an assessment, and if you need to, get a second opinion and always ask, is this something I can wait? How long can I wait? Can I wait three months, six months, a year, 18 months? And um, are there other options medically and non-medically? Now, how do you choose between whether to do alternative and conventional therapies? Well, actually, even if you require medical treatment, a diet and lifestyle approach should always be followed to prevent recurrence and to address the root causes that led to fibroid growth in the first place. Conventional therapies can play an important role if symptoms are impacting your quality of life. You're experiencing heavy abnormal bleeding. You're exhausted. You're anemic. Um, there's rapid growth of the fibroid and it's causing a problem like a fertility challenge, then medical treatment may be necessary. But there are a lot of medical treatments along the way before surgery and and non-hysterectomy surgical treatments that are much less interventive. And in every case, the least interventional approach that's possible to follow to achieve your goals and keep you safe and healthy is optimal. So options include, for aching and discomfort, pain medications like acetaminophen, it's Tylenol, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen can be used. The Mirena IUD is an excellent option for women with fibroids that do not distort the inside of the uterus. So if the fibroids aren't pushing into the uterus, making the uterine interior lining distorted, it's a wonderful approach. It reduces heavy bleeding and painful bleeding, but it doesn't treat the fibroids themselves. So again, critically important to do the lifestyle, nutritional, et cetera, approaches. And the IUD can cause some side effects like acne, spotting, which is vaginal bleeding between periods, weight gain, abdominal pain, and breast tenderness in some women. But if it's something you want to try, you can try it insurance will usually cover it. And if you don't like it, it's very easy to remove. They're 
more uncomfortable coming in. They're not uncomfortable at all coming out. So um, very, very simple to set up an appointment and try that if you want to. Now, birth control pills are commonly used for fibroids, but they actually have minimal research for fibroid treatment. However, they can be used if you have heavy menstrual bleeding um, as a way to curtail that bleeding and prevent anemia, if that heavy menstrual bleeding is due to fibroids. So it's something you could use as a bridge if you're really having heavy bleeding, you have large fibroids, you don't want more invasive treatment or surgeries, and you want to try a natural approach, but you're trying to buy yourself time, if you will. That's one option. But like any hormonal birth control, um, for this use, they also have side effects. And over at my website at avivaram.com forward slash 159, that's the number 159, I have a corresponding article for you. For those of you who are new to Natural MD Radio, I try to do this as often as possible with these informational topics so that you don't have to remember the information. You can keep going about whatever it is you're doing while you're listening. My daughter, she is an avid podcast listener and she's always listening on her morning walks. My best friend is an avid podcast listener and she listens while she Um, drives in her car. So neither are great times to stop and jot down information. So it's all done for you because my, one of my kind of, one of my kind of um, themes is that healthy shouldn't be hard. And so over at avivaram.com forward slash 159, you'll find all this information in an article, including links to other articles, like an article that I have on what are the um, risks and side effects of oral contraceptives and what you can do to support and protect yourself if you do have to take um, a birth control pill for a gynecologic or hormonal reason. So the nutrients that you want to take, because one of the side effects of birth control pills is that they can deplete nutrients. So head over to the corresponding blog of evaram.com forward slash 159 and scan through and click on some of the links. They'll take you to the a lot of the research that I'm talking about. There's also probably 25 additional references at the bottom of the article, but you'll also see the information on these different medical approaches. And when I get to them in a minute, you'll hear that there is um, information that you'll want to be able to save and click back to, maybe bookmark and click back to if you are going to do a self-care approach as part of your approach to preventing and treating fibroids. All right, so the next medication that you can use is something called a GnRH agonist. And that is um, a medication that that suppresses estrogen and progesterone production um, at the pituitary level. So GnRH agonist, uh, an example of that, a common medication is called luprolide, can reduce symptoms and fibroid size by as much as 30% to 64% after three to six months of treatment. They do have side effects though. They include hot flashes, headaches, vaginal dryness, vaginitis, decreased libido, joint and muscle stiffness, and depression. In fact, it's kind of putting you into like a temporary menopausal hormonal state. And um, so they may be really side effects that you don't want. Um, They're not my favorite go-to medication. The only reason I would use them is if someone has really large fibroids and we're trying to shrink those fibroids over, say, three months or six months instead of surgery while we're onboarding a... um, 
a nutritional botanical lifestyle approach. If the fibroids are not causing significant problems, they're not huge, then I would always lean into the the approaches that I've just mentioned, possibly an IUD, possibly birth control. And if they're smaller and a woman feels like she can just push through, then um, no medication treatment at all. And we go right into the natural approaches, which most women who come to me, they've been dealing with fibroids for quite a long time already. As long as they're not anemic you know, or having heavy bleeding, um, then often we can just jump right into a natural approach and do that. Um, and I'll talk about what to expect in just a minute. Now, one thing that's important to know also is that bone loss occurs with these GnRH agonists. Remember I said it's kind of like a menopausal, temporary menopausal situation. And estrogen is important for bone health and growth and strength. And so while you're on the GnRH agonist, bone loss actually occurs, but it is reversible. And a number of women, actually 2%, it's pretty small, but still, a number of women experience a major vaginal hemorrhage five to 10 weeks after starting these GnRH agonists. And guess what? When you discontinue them, the fibroids usually return to their previous size. So if your doctor brings these up as an option, you've got this article to refer back to, let her or him know, hey, uh, what do you think about these side effects and what else can we do instead? And if you do need to use one, go into it really knowingly. Um, one more medication before we get into the surgical options is called ulipristal acetate, and it's used for short-term treatment only up to three months, and it can relieve symptoms like heavy periods and shrink the fibroids somewhat. It's less effective than the GnRH agonists, but has fewer side effects. And like the GnRH agonists, fibroids grow again after treatment and symptoms usually return. So the trade-off between the ulipristal acetate and the luprolide or a drug like that is the fewer side effects, um, you know, in exchange for some benefit. And again, you would use that if you were trying to bridge the um, natural therapies uh, from large fibroids or if you do have really large fibroids and you want to shrink them for three to six months before going into surgery, because the smaller the fibroids, the less invasive the surgery can potentially be and lower risk. So that brings us to surgical options. And those include myomectomy, which is removal of a segment of the muscle of the uterus, laparoscopic, um, and uh, which can be done laparoscopically, or you can have um, transvaginal um, surgeries, endometrial ablation, and hysterectomy. Again, for large fibroids, pre-surgical treatment with luprolide may facilitate more conservative surgery. With surgeries, between 15 and 30% of women experience fibroid regrowth after five years. And this is really important to remember because as I said, you're not addressing any of the root causes, that excess estrogen, those growth hormone factors, that insulin resistance, the metabolic syndrome, the low vitamin D that not only contribute to fibroids, but can contribute to a whole host of other chronic medical conditions. So, you know, if you choose to have the surgery, if you choose to have the hysterectomy, if you have a hysterectomy, obviously the fibroids aren't going to regrow because they need your uterus, but with the ablation, et cetera, they can, and the myomectomy, they can regrow. So the only sure treatment, you know, for permanently getting rid of them surgically is a hysterectomy. With the ablation, it's important to know that a rare complication can happen, which is um, scarring of the uterus if the 
ablation is not done by a highly skilled practitioner and that can later affect fertility and conception. Um, an extreme version of this condition is called Asherman syndrome. And I actually have seen it in my practice due to, um, uh, it was due to a DNC after a miscarriage, not an ablation, but you want to just make sure that whoever is operating you on you is really skilled and takes care of a lot of people with fibroids. Surgery should always be reserved, in my opinion, ideally for women who are past childbearing, are heavily symptomatic, and aren't respect responsive to drug therapies. And of course, if there's any suspected malignancy happening along with the fibroid, then that's an important um, reason for surgery. When it comes to uterine fibroids, yes, I talk and really emphasize about how important it is to know how often hysterectomies are done unnecessarily. Look, I'm a Yale-trained MD, so I'm talking about my own people. I'm talking about my own club here, y'all. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm somebody who's been in on hysterectomies um, as a surgeon. I, um, or, you know, assisting as I, I'm not a surgeon. I do minor surgeries in my practice. I'm, I'm licensed to do minor surgeries. So I don't do obstetric and gynecologic surgeries anymore. I would assist at them. And I've seen a lot of them. And I've seen a lot of surgeries where other therapies could have preempted the need for surgery. And I can tell you, along with cesarean sections, which we know are significantly overdone in the US, um, these are two of the biggest cash cow surgeries in, um, in American medicine. Um, they're two of the most frequently performed surgeries. So I want you to always make sure that if you are going to have a surgery, you truly need it because hysterectomy is not, um, it's not a small deal. Even going under general anesthesia for less invasive therapies is not a small deal. You have to go into the hospital, you're exposed to resistant microorganisms in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. That said, there is absolutely a time and a place for surgery, including hysterectomy. If you've tried natural therapies and you've tried pharmaceutical options, minimally invasive and um, can surgery can be very, and you've tried, I'm sorry, if you've tried minimally invasive surgery and you're past childbearing or you're just really uncomfortable and you're, you know, happy to use a surrogate or another option, um, then if you're bleeding, if you're fatigued, if it's fibroids are affecting your quality of life, if you're, you know, you know you're not having any more kids and you're just done with the symptoms, um, absolutely. It's a way that I've seen many women restore their quality of life, their sex life, their happiness, their energy. And so even in my medical practice, there are times when I have said to a woman who has come to me and she has really symptomatic, really large fibroids, hey, we could spend a year working on this together and reducing these maybe, but you're miserable, you're exhausted, you're anemic, you're, this is really affecting your life. Maybe this, the hysterectomy is actually the best option for you. The main thing is it's not a decision to rest into. It's a legitimate choice when made from a well-informed and confident place. And in most cases of uterine fibroids, it is possible to spare the ovaries and remove the uterus only, which from a long-term health perspective is ideal. All of you listening should absolutely consult your medical provider if you experience persistent pelvic pain, spotting or bleeding between periods, heavy, prolonged, or painful periods, difficulty urinating, fatigue, anemia, or any symptoms that are really getting in the way of you living your best life. 
So let's switch gears and talk about a natural approach to uterine fibroids. Medical and surgical approaches, as I've said, don't address or reverse the underlying causes that contribute to fibroids, and that when persistent, may contribute to a variety of other conditions that can result from its root causes, including high blood pressure, high estrogen, chronic inflammation, insulin resistance, and the impacts of chronic vitamin D deficiency and more. Natural approaches can be effective in addressing these root causes and helping you avoid pharmaceutical and surgical intervention. A pilot study comparing a combination of natural approaches versus just conventional treatments alone for uterine fibroids demonstrated, interestingly, that there was no statistically significant difference in change of symptoms between the two groups when measured after six months of treatment. Both experienced improvement in symptoms and fibroid size. But those in the treatment group considered the study a success because they were able to achieve results equivalent to pharmaceutical or surgical intervention using non-conventional methods only. It is possible to significantly reduce symptoms of small to medium fibroids naturally. And if symptoms are reduced, further medical and surgical treatment are then usually not needed. The plan I use in my practice and share in depth in hormone intelligence is based on addressing the known risk factors for fibroids that I shared with you earlier using a combination of dietary, lifestyle, nutritional, and botanical strategies with evidence of their preventing or reducing fibroids. So step one is to reduce endocrine disruptors. Minimizing your exposure to environmental endocrine disruptors is a critical first step in creating healthy estrogen levels so that you're not driving fibroid growth, especially considering that endocrine disruptors can also drive weight problems and inflammation, both other risk factors for fibroids. You can find a full protocol for reducing your exposure to estrogen disruptors over at avivaram.com forward slash 159 under step one, reduce endocrine disruptors. You'll find the link and more tips for reducing excess estrogen in another article and podcast. But here are some of the high level go-to strategies to start with right now. First, pass on the plastic. Change to glass or stainless steel water bottles and food storage containers and avoid all plastic cling wrap. Any plastic should not touch your food or your beverages. Also, reduce your exposure to the toxins in our food system by purchasing everything you can, organic um, or you know, over-conventionally grown, and make that non-negotiable when it comes to meat, eggs, and dairy. Swap your cosmetics and your body care products, and I have a full podcast for you on how to do that as well. So you've got a little homework. You're going to be doing a little research, um, listening to my article, listening to my podcast, or reading articles. But it's all very doable. And at first, it may feel like a little bit of work because yes, you do have to swap out your body care products, and yes, you do have to go to Target or Amazon or your local dollar store and get glass containers instead of plastic containers. But what I can tell you is in a very short amount of time, it becomes second nature. And I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't live my life by. I live my life by these principles. I've been doing it for 40 years now, y'all. I started this kind of stuff when I was 15, I'm 55. It is not more expensive to live this way. In fact, what you save in terms of going to the doctor, feeling crappy, uh, you know, three times the number of pads or tampons because you're having heavy bleeding, 
missing work because of symptoms, et cetera, et cetera. Just your life happiness is so worth it. But even on a monetary level, it doesn't have to cost you more. One more quick thing um, in terms of environmental exposures is to wash your hands well after handling receipts because those may be coated with endocrine disruptors like BPA or BPS. It's a weird phenomenon, but it's real. Okay, step two is to eat a plant-rich anti-inflammatory diet. Now, you can spend a few days doing step one and then progress into step two or you just do them both at the same time. You want to choose fish and legumes over red meat, pork, and ham. You want to eat a full three servings of fish each week, which is protective against fibroids, and include legumes in your diet two to three times each week to help improve estrogen levels, and they do this with their fiber content. You want to eliminate dairy, all together. I recommend eliminating dairy for at least six months to see how that affects your fibroid symptoms. Dairy contains a hormone called insulin-like growth factor one, or IGF-1. That's similar to insulin and stimulates the growth of cells while preventing unhealthy cells from doing what they're supposed to do naturally, die off. Adding to this, the dairy industry allows the use of a growth factor called RBGH, which amps up the levels of IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1. In addition to being associated with breast and other cancers, it also plays a role in the growth of uterine fibroids. You want to, as I mentioned, increase veggies and fruit to 8 to 10 servings a day, especially emphasizing leafy greens, which help reduce excess estrogen, and one piece of citrus fruit a day, which has been found to specifically be protective against fibroids. You want to maximize your dietary fiber. Now, if you're adding legumes and getting 8 to 10 servings of veggies a day and fruits a day, you've already done it. But you can also add two tablespoons of ground flaxseed in your diet, which adds actually about a whopping 15 um, or more grams a day of fiber. You want to include food sources of vitamin A, like eggs, fish, yellow, red, and green and orange vegetables. Vitamin A has been shown to be protective for fibroid prevention, though supplementing vitamin A has not been shown to shrink fibroids. So supplementing vitamin D, yes, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, vitamin A you want to get from your diet. Now here's one that might not make me so popular, but you want to ditch the alcohol and weirdly, especially beer. Alcohol is pro-estrogenic. It increases estrogen, not in a way that we want it to. And beer may actually be specifically associated with an increased risk of fibroids. So data suggests that if you have fibroids, um, it's current alcohol use rather than past alcohol use that poses a risk. So ixnay the alcohol. Step three is to use herbs and supplements. Let's start with vitamin D. So not only is vitamin D insufficiency or deficiency associated with increased risk of fibroids, but vitamin D appears to be a a powerful protectant against their development. So whether you have small fibroids, big fibroids, or no fibroids at all, sounds like Goldilocks, doesn't it? I recommend supplementing 2,000 units of vitamin D3 every day. But for best results, have your medical provider test your vitamin D level and help you supplement to reach a blood level between 50 and 80 nanograms per deciliter. That's the sweet spot. Less than that, not so much. More than that, not so good. 
Another supplement you can use is green tea extract. Now, this is different than just drinking green tea. Green tea extract has been found to be helpful for reducing uterine fibroid size and symptoms, including heavy bleeding. In one study, women who took green tea extract daily for four months had a 32.6% reduction in fibroid volume and a 32.4% reduction in severity of fibroid symptoms. Compare that to the luprolide that I mentioned before, and guess what? Without the side effects. So um, a great option is to combine the vitamin D and green tea extract. If you're just going to do two supplements along with your healthy lifestyle plan, those are the two. The dose is 800 milligrams of green tea extract, uh, looking for a product that's standardized to 45% EGCG. Those are epigallocatechins and 95% polyphenols. Now, you do not want to increase over that dose. This is not a more is better. You can do this for six months, but do not exceed that dose because higher doses of green tea may be associated with liver toxicity. If you have a liver problem, don't use this without talking to your primary care provider. All right, two more supplements that you might consider, two more uh, food and botanical supplements. One are broccoli extracts, DIM, D-I-N, sulforaphane or indol-3-carbinol. You can get these as supplements. You can eat broccoli sprouts in your diet or you can get a broccoli sprouts powder. These potently increase what is called phase two detoxification in your liver, which helps to metabolize and eliminate estrogen. You want to take a dose of either indol-3-carbinol at 300 to 600 milligrams daily or DIM at 100 to 200 milligrams daily. Taking both is not necessary. Even if you get a lot of broccoli and greens, kale, collards, et cetera, in your diet, it is okay to add these. If you have a thyroid problem, if you have hypothyroid, I recommend not adding these specific supplements to your diet. Just eat the leafy greens. Those are okay if you have a thyroid problem. They're great. You just want to make sure to eat them cooked instead of juiced or in lots and lots of kale salads. Finally, for herbs, um, black cohosh was historically used for the treatment of symptoms, presumably that were due to fibroids. So if you look in the old medical literature from the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, you'll see symptoms like dragging in the lower uh, in the thighs or um, uh, dull pain, chronic pain in the abdomen with a distended belly. So we can assume that you know women back then had some fibroids too. Certainly nothing compared to the rate we see now. And black cohosh was one of those herbs used in a small study in 2014. Women who took 40 milligrams daily of black cohosh experienced an average decrease in fibroid size of 30.3 percent after a 12 week treatment period. So. It's a safe herb, it is not estrogenic, and definitely worth um, adding to a protocol. Over at the corresponding blog with this podcast, I also share with you um, what is just a uterine fibroid blend, Dr. Aviva's uterine fibroid blend, and it's a tincture combination that I have used in my practice for over 30 years now that acts as what's called a uterine astringent in that it helps to um, tone that uterine tissue and is has herbs that would be classically used for uterine fibroids. So it contains yarrow, black cohosh, red raspberry, white peony, 
and ginger. So if you're interested in something like that, you can check it out and um, over at the avivaram.com forward slash 159. Step four is lifestyle support. So you've got your um, your reduction in endocrine disruptors is step one. You've got step two, eating a plant-rich anti-inflammatory diet. Step three, I would add in the vitamin D right away regardless, but if you want to, from the beginning of your plan, add in the vitamin D and the green tea extract, at least all power to you. And then you can add in the black cohosh if you want. Step four is exercise. And exercise can actually lead to a substantial decrease in fibroids. Now, I get it. It may feel a little challenging to get out there and walk if you have to pee every 15 minutes. So you might want to start with an exercise program at home like Peloton or Glow, which is G-L-O. It's online Pilates, online yoga, Peloton. You do not have to have the bicycle. In fact, my best friend for my birthday when I was post writing the book, which meant a lot of sitting, gave me a monthly subscription to the um, on-the-floor Peloton. So it's yoga, Pilates, strength, and core. You can do classes at home that are really fun and really encouraging if you feel like you can't get out there right now because of the fibroids. Exercise not only encourages weight reduction, if that's a problem affecting your fibroids, but also improve, and it's good for high blood pressure, right? Another risk factor for some women, but it also improves pelvic circulation, promotes uterine muscle tone, and promotes regular bowel elimination, which means that you're helping to, it's helping you to excrete that excess estrogen that your liver breaks down. Women who exercise seven hours or more a week reduce their risk substantially. So what does that look like? something every day, one hour of a walk every day, yoga class, dance, or other form of movement you love. Can't do an hour a day. It doesn't mean that five days a week doesn't help. It doesn't mean that 30 minutes, four days a week doesn't help. Just get moving. Additionally, yoga postures, vigorous walking, hip circling, pelvic thrust, and belly dancing, and my new favorite, it's a new old favorite, hula hooping, can all be used to reduce discomfort and improve pelvic circulation. Now, as part of lifestyle, this could have gone under supplements, I guess, too, is to check for anemia. If you've been having heavy bleeding due to uterine fibroids, it can cause you to get low on your iron stores, and that can cause you to be incredibly fatigued. It can also cause depression, loss of concentration, and in severe cases, it can cause breathing difficulties and a racing heart, and it can make it really hard to exercise. So if you've had heavy bleeding, heavy periods, bleeding between your periods, go to your primary care provider and have have her check for your hemoglobin, your hematocrit, and your ferritin to make sure that your iron is okay. And if you need to, go ahead and take a chelated iron to get your iron stores back up because this isn't a great time to add in red meat if you can avoid it. Again, because remember the inflammatory trigger with, um, with fibroids and red meat. So what can you expect with a natural approach? Like so many hormonal problems, three to six months is a realistic window in which to begin to see symptom improvement, which is the most important goal with treating fibroids. Symptom improvement is a likely sign that fibroid size is shrinking, which you'll typically see um, in no less than two to three menstrual cycles after treatment. So you really want to give yourself a few months. And I recommend continuing the supplement part of the plan until you've achieved substantial reduction in symptoms. How long should you continue the lifestyle part of the plan? Forever, because remember, this is the same lifestyle plan for healthy living, 
healthy hormones. It is the plan that I lay out for you in hormone intelligence around how to eat, sleep, stress reduction, gut health, reducing inflammation, etc. Now, in three to six months, if you see no improvement at all, or if at any time symptoms become too troublesome when you're just done, you can consider bumping up to a conventional medical approach. And one option is to use medication, as I mentioned earlier, to reduce those large fibroids or try an IUD and then maintain the benefits with the natural therapies and see if that doesn't get you the results you're looking for. If you have very large fibroids, meaning over a 16-week size uterus, these can be much more difficult to reduce. If symptoms aren't causing you too much trouble, it's still worth a go for the six to 12 months with natural therapies. But if after that time or any time, symptoms do become a problem for you, again, consider your medical options for greater relief. And many women are content to have symptom control using pharmaceuticals um, if they don't need surgery, as long as the fibroids present no problems. Fibroids like diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol are not inevitable. They are 21st century chronic conditions that we can seek to prevent and whenever possible, reverse. Addressing uterine fibroids by preventing them is so important for our long-term health and so that we don't experience unnecessary discomfort, complications, or suffering, or become yet another hysterectomy statistic. While there's no shame in using medications and surgery, a more natural approach is such an important part of taking care of our total health and creating a health revolution in which we're the CEOs of our own hormones, our own gynecology, and our own bodies. I hope this podcast episode has been incredibly helpful, informative. I hope you bookmark it. I hope you share it with your sister, your mom, your daughters, any of the people in your life who have a uterus that you want to help prevent uterine fibroids. And I hope that if you haven't already, you will subscribe to Natural MD Radio wherever you subscribe to podcasts, write a rave review, tell a friend. And if you haven't already got a copy of Hormone Intelligence, grab your copy and head over to avivaram.com forward slash book to grab some really special book bonuses. See you next time on Natural MD Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.